PR Pro Cannabis Media. Hi, everyone. Welcome again to another very special edition of In the Weeds with Jimmy Young, our regular podcast interview show that we do here on Pro Cannabis Media, one of the handful of original pieces of content that we produce on a somewhat weekly basis here. Our We Talk News, our live Green Rush Business of Cannabis show on Fridays at 4 p.m. We ask you to like, share, and subscribe to all of the shows that Pro Cannabis Media not only produces, but also distributes on our 24-7 feed on our Roku, Apple channel, and our website, Pro Cannabis Media. Joining us today is going to be a very interesting discussion with a gentleman who has the title of Chief Knowledge Officer for New Frontier Data. His name is John Kagia. I did it right when it counted, right, John? You did, Jimmy. You did. <laughs> Thank you very much. I love that. Positive reinforcement so important for me. Uh, first of all, what does the Chief Knowledge Officer do at a data company? So it's an interesting role, and, and we've seen the rise of the CKO over the past decade as a way of harnessing the institutional and intelligence within an organization and translating that to value creation for the market. Basically, it means I lead a research team of exceptionally talented analysts who cast the net really wide and spend all of our waking hours thinking deeply about where the cannabis industry has been, where it is today, and where it's going, and then translating those insights into, into intelligence, actionable intelligence that stakeholders, whether they're investors, business owners, policymakers, regulators, or companies outside the industry that are looking at this space and trying to figure out either what opportunities might lie in the space or how they might be impacted in it, um, generating intelligence that they can use to, to make better informed decisions. Absolutely. And you're in Washington, D.C., correct? I am. I am. Can we spread the intelligence around there a little bit amongst our political leaders? Can we just try and do that? I'm only kidding. I kid We're because doing the best I, we can. Yeah, that's right. Isn't that the truth in this country, right? Um, so the reason why you and I are talking is I got a copy of this very interesting report uh, called Cannabis Consumers in America, Dynamics Shaping Normalization in 2022. And I briefly read through this. It's a pretty in-depth uh, survey of 20,000 participants over the last two or three years, That's right? right? That's right. Um, some amazing, uh, interesting findings, although I will say after doing about 400 interviews in the last few years, I've certainly looked at some of the facts that you guys have come up with and said, hmm, that was true then, but man, it may not be true now because it changes so fast in this industry. And I mean, as far as usage goes, as far as knowledge, uh, acquiring knowledge about the product goes, there's so much more surveys and research being done. Even surveys that are done within the last three or four years, I'm looking at it go, I'm not so sure that's true anymore. However, there is one thing that definitely is true, is that uh, all in all, People are accepting it more and more in our world, and the stigma seems to be coming down. Obviously, having data like this and surveys like this help that. Is that the, is that the charge of what New Frontier Data tries to do with these kinds of reports? Absolutely. And, and you make a really important point about how quickly things are changing. 
because while we can all agree that um, anybody who's been even casually observing this space over the past few years will recognize that we're in a very different environment than we were five, 10 years ago. We've certainly come a tremendous way since Colorado first legalized in 2014. But candidly, Jimmy, I think we're all grossly underestimating how fast all of this is moving and the implications it is going to be having for American society, for American social society over the next 10, 20, 30 years. This is a seismic generational change that is underway. Um, and it's hard to, to, to overstate the myriad ways in which this is going to, going to um, impact the economy, impact the way, business, uh, the way businesses are uh, run, impact the place of cannabis on Main Street, uh, impact where cannabis sits in the, in the American kind of healthcare uh, ecosystem. Um, and and so um, it, we, we find it critically important to be able to do these studies on an ongoing basis. We literally just finished this study at the beginning of the year. So this is fresh off the presses um, because it helps us understand uh, and track how quickly these changes are happening and begin to better predict what the downstream implications are going to be. So we can all plan better. And for those who are invested in this market, capitalize on these opportunities as they emerge. So one of the things I wrote down in my notes as I was going through this report uh, is there is similar usage behavior in the legal market and in the legacy market too. Can you expound on that a little bit? So this is one of the things that's been really fascinating to us. We used to see, uh, for example, if we jump back to 2014 when Colorado first legalized, mm -hmm. there was a really significant difference in behaviors between the legal markets and the illicit markets, in part because the types of products that were available in the legal markets were not available in the illicit markets. So one easy example is um, you tended to see much more interest in the value-added products, the vapes, the edibles, the topicals and tinctures in the legal markets, whereas in the illicit markets back then, it used to be most people just primarily consumed flour and that was, that was where they, they um, focused. Um, and even, when, uh, even amongst those who consumed edibles, it would be homemade brownies and that sort of product. Now these markets are operating in parity. The, uh, in the illicit markets, the access to these um, higher quality value added products has increased so dramatically that there's almost no lag, no difference in behavior in product preferences and rates of use uh, and consumer attitudes between these, new, uh, these two types of markets, other than the fact that some of these products are legal and some of them are illicit. Yeah, and flour is king, 57% so far. Uh, yeah, and I think that goes to where the market that is getting into this or even has used it for years over the last few decades illegally is, is more comfortable with the flower and the uh, impacts and effects that the flower has on the human. More easy to control rather than the unknown factor and the delayed response that you get when you ingest one of these products. Is that accurate? So, so there's absolutely a much greater degree of, of both familiarity and comfort with flower. Mm -hmm. However, as we've seen the pace of innovation of these value-added products accelerate dramatically, both in terms of the quality of the products, the precision of the dosing. So unlike the brownies that a lot of people used to have 20 years ago, where you take a bite and you don't know whether you're going to be hit like a ham, you know, with an anvil or, or whether it's not going to take effect for uh, two hours, it was a really unpredictable experience. Now you're finding products where it's almost clockwork specific, uh, precision in terms of uh, the type of effect you're going to feel, uh, its replicability so that you always know if you drink, you know, 
um, uh, one 10 ounce can of, of a beverage. You're going to have consistently replicated experience every time you have that beverage. And so that's really appealing to consumers who um, are, are turning to these value added products for a few reasons. One, they're a lot more discreet uh, than flour. You can't smoke a joint in most places without you know, alerting everybody around you. Right. It's the smell. Go ahead. It's we smell. all know Absolutely. it's that pungent <laughs> smell. Okay. Absolutely. Um, uh, two, the, the, the convenience, the portability. You know, it turns out that most people aren't particularly good joint rollers. Um, and then having to carry a pipe or bong around, I mean, it's paraphernalia, it's heavy. So the idea of having a gummy or an edible uh, uh, beverage, um, these are highly portable products, really convenient to, to transport. Mm -hmm. And then third is, you know, we, we can't um, underestimate the impact that a generation who has grown up um, hearing that smoking is bad for you in, in the cigarette context um, uh, would be more receptive to consuming in other forms because one, uh, particularly for younger adults, they're not as yet cemented in their behaviors as smokers. It's much older to get uh, older smokers to transition to value-added products than younger consumers who are willing to try anything. Uh, and two, um, the younger consumers have a much stronger kind of uh, recoil to, to combustion as a primary form of ingestion uh, uh, relative to other types of products. To be clear, smoking is not going, uh, going away anytime soon. It is going to remain the primary way which people of all ages consume. But what we're seeing that's really interesting is this explosion in demand for these value-added products. And part of what they're enabling people to do is create tailored, customized uh, ways in which they can integrate cannabis into their lives, whether it's cosmetics, skincare products, uh, pain medications, sleep aids, um, that you supplement with your, your flour, not substitute with your flour. Um, so one of the things that I picked up in the, my brief um, discovery section that I read over the last few minutes, I'll be perfectly honest with you, okay, um, is that education about this plant drives the behavior of its use. That's what I take away from this, especially when I look at the year 2018. That was the first year of adult use in Massachusetts. And as you know, Massachusetts was the first Eastern Coast state to legalize and open an adult use market. And uh, a quick little news item, and I'm gonna date this, uh, the commissioner of the Massachusetts Cannabis Commission actually resigned today. Now, granted, uh, his term was up in August, so he obviously just wanted to get a jump on the summer uh, tourism world, I guess, but uh, we wanna wish Stephen Hoffman uh, best of luck in his, his future. And I have, on the record, I've asked him if he'd like to have a talk show, he's welcome on this network anytime. Um, but get back to my point about education about the plant driving behavior. You're right about the titration. I remember going in for the first time with my medical card to a medical dispensary, walking up to this bud tender. Uh, and I use that term in quotes a little bit because uh, I'm, I'm much more comfortable with patient advocate uh, because this is truly a medicinal product. And, it, and it's interesting because it's going to affect every individual differently. So no matter what the knowledge of the bud tender or the patient advocate has, the individual's experience is going to dictate their behavior and use of this product. Do you agree with that? We do. And we think this is part of, part of the reason why we've seen cannabis usage rates increase so dramatically over the past decade. 
Yeah. Um, in, in the US, the, the National Survey on Drug Use and Health just put out uh, its latest study that finds now that nearly one in five Americans use cannabis at least once a year and more than one in 10, 12% of Americans are using it at least once a month. Um, that's over 50% over 50 increase just since 2012 alone. Why that's, is hang on a second, that's the, that is 18 plus? Is that what that is or 21 yes. plus? Uh, uh, 18 plus. 18 plus, okay, because I know there's a big difference between the 1834 demographic and the 3554 adult demographic as far as usage and uh, uh, how much they use it too. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Totally right, and maybe just quickly on that. So younger adults obviously consume significant, at significantly higher rates and more frequency than older adults. But usage rates are increasing faster amongst older adults who are coming into this and realizing that, hang on, this might actually be able to, to significantly help with conditions that uh, they're dealing with as they, as they uh, enter the golden years. Mm -hmm. So to your point about consumer education, part of the reason it's, it's so transformative to the cannabis consumer's experience, even for people who've been longtime consumers in the illicit market, they may have a kind of rough orientation to, to why they like to consume it, but it's generally been very unintentional use. And I mean, I, and I use the word unintentional very specifically in that um, it's not with the kind of calibrated alignment of a specific desired outcome with a specific product. And so what becomes possible in the legal market is the ability to, to explore what you want to uh, achieve through your cannabis use. Is it sleep? Is it improve your sleep outcomes? Is it manage stress or anxiety? Mm. Is it just to relax? Is it to treat pain? Um, are, are, do you have a specific medical condition that you're trying to uh, alleviate? Um, is it nausea? Are you dealing with feminine health issues? And the fact that there are cannabis products now that can be um, used to address each and every one of those uh, desired outcomes, desired experiences, means that cannabis consumers can now approach their conversation with their bud tender, with their patient advocate, saying, I'm dealing with X, Y, or Z. Um, I'm looking for a product that is either combustion or non-combustion that will allow me to sleep better or keep me up longer and, and build a really tailored experience. And once you've gone through that, um, not only does it allow you to, to consider um, to, to integrate cannabis into your life in a much more kind of routinized way. But it also means that your, your consumption patterns change because now it's just not, you know, I'm, I'm going to go get high with the boys or girls, but it becomes, um, I'm going to be using a very specific product to achieve a very specific outcome. This type of consumer education about how to optimize their outcomes, how to optimize their experience um, is going to be transformational to the emergence of, of um, and this and the maturation of legal cannabis for the, over the coming decade. Yeah, absolutely. And what's and the product that is taking the biggest hit here is alcohol, which I find fascinating. And in fact, now uh, you're actually starting to see more tax dollars being generated from the cannabis side of things than the alcohol side of things. And as we know, alcohol was prohibited before cannabis was prohibited during that prohibition era. Uh, and then I. I'm on record as saying in, in 1937, the wrong drug got prohibited, but we could discuss that at another time or read that blog on our website, Pro Cannabis Media. Um, do you see cannabis as a threat to the alcohol industry, or do you see eventually the alcohol industry actually getting into the cannabis space? And we've already kind of seen that north of the border in Canada. We see two parts to that question. Yeah. 
legal cannabis will absolutely be um, eroding to demand for cannabis, uh, demand for alcohol over the long term. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason is because this is a seismic generational shift we're seeing. Young adults are coming of age in an environment where alcohol, where, where cannabis is as acceptable and in many cases regarded as much safer than alcohol. And so if you haven't developed your palate for, um, uh, for alcohol at, in those critical formative years, the 18 to 25 years, uh, if, you, if you haven't experimented with alcohol at that age, it's very unlikely that 45 years old, you'll be going out to buy a 20-year-old scotch. You're just not going to have the taste for it. <laughs> and so for these young adults who are coming of age at a time where they view cannabis as safer, a healthier alternative, a, a very different type of experience, and one that doesn't leave them with a ha- hangover or some of the deleterious health effects, um, the, the, the likelihood that they're going to then become um, significant and sustained drinkers over their lifetimes um, mm-hmm. becomes quite unlikely. So um, the total loss of lifetime value of young adults who are coming of age today is going to be quite considerable to the alcohol industry, which is precisely why the alcohol industry is starting to make these investments into the cannabis industry. Um, for, I, I, increasingly, we think the alcohol industry is seeing this as just reallocation of dollars. And so if they own significant assets on the cannabis side of the ledger, then they're keeping the consumer within their umbrella or um, uh, entities, uh, those dollars that might have once been spent on alcohol, though now are then going to be spent on their cannabis products. I'm going to throw something out at you, and, and I'm interested to get your uh, opinion on it. It's the term recreational use. I think the world recognizes, 90% recognize that there are medicinal components to this plant that can help others in specific um, diagnoses. Whatever that happens to be, it's kind of led the whole medical revolution in cannabis, starting in California and then spreading you know, to now 37 states uh, around the United States. Uh, but the term recreational, as opposed to the term adult use, has taken on a little bit life, a little life of its own within the industry. And a lot of people in the industry don't like that term recreational, yet I do see it in your report. Was that ever discussed amongst the people that were putting this all together? Absolutely. And, and it's something that we've actually been saying is a, is a um, the, the, the defining the non-medical consumer as a recreational consumer mm. is really a gross misnaming of the consumers who are who are um, uh, m- much more nuanced in their use than uh, than recreational would suggest. And there's two problems with the word recreational. One yeah. is that it, it suggests this idea of play, social. It's a party drug, which cannabis is not. If you look at the top reasons why uh, people use cannabis, and we have this in our study. Relaxation, stress relief, reduce, reducing anxiety, improving sleep quality, helping, falling, helping them fall asleep faster, um, uh, increasing their overall wellness. Seventh on the list is enjoying social experiences, which I think narrowly could be the one quote unquote recreational application, but that's near uh, close to the bottom of the list. So most non-medical users are wellness-based 
consumers. They're using cannabis to improve their, their, their quality of life. They're not using it in the way that the term recreational uh, suggests. And while you know the, the recreational gained traction is a way for legal markets to define their non-medical use, and so it's become the industry parlance. So we use it in the report because it's the term that most people use. But you also note that, that we talk a lot about adult use in terms of, of that distinction. Uh, and we make the point in this report that um, uh, the, the, the industry and the market rich, writ large are going to need to transition away from defining non-medical uses as recreational uh, because mm -hmm. that uh, oversimplifies what is a really nuanced uh, and uh, really complex set of behaviors that are driving their use. Right. And, and by the way, Robitussin, the most popular cough medicine that's out there that doesn't have codeine in it, and you can put codeine in it too, that is now uh, being used recreationally by young adults, which is a dangerous thing, which again, another example of understanding that this is a medicinal product that needs to be used responsibly. You need to educate yourself. Um, and, you know, people just accept the fact that you could go to your local CVS or Walgreens and get Tussin or Robitussin and that has Dectromophorphan in it. And, you know, guess what? Kids get a buzz off that. That's why now it's behind the counter. Do you ever see the day where we will have the medical dispensary as kind of like a pharmacy where you really do have to go and get a prescription for it? And there are some legislators out there in states right now in the United States who are actually pushing for that. But again, it goes back to education and research, which I think is probably the most important thing that our federal government can do. Uh, what's your feeling about the future of the distribution of this product as it evolves into more of a medicinal uh, effect on all? So that's a, that's a really important question because we are about to see a potential sea change in the regulation of cannabis, both in the US and globally. And everybody's wrestling with this question of how do you uh, minimize potential public health social risk, uh, but, but also not impinge on the rights of uh, uh, rational adults to make their own decisions on what they choose to, to ingest, particularly given that cannabis has demonstrably fairly relatively limited harm uh, or does relatively limited harm compared to alcohol or tobacco. Part of the reason why it's clear that the um, turning this into a, a high barrier to entry prescription based market is not going to work is because of how large the existing market already is. In most places in America, it, it, is, it is very, very easy to gain, to gain access to cannabis and increasingly very easy to gain access to very high quality cannabis. As we spoke at the beginning of the show, this is why the illicit market is now behaving almost exactly the same way the, the adult use markets are. And so um, all you do by making it more challenging for consumers in legal regulated markets to gain access is you send them back into the illicit market, a place that most consumers don't want to go, but they'll do it because that's where they were purchasing from before cannabis became legal. They know that environment well, and the products are readily available. America has been, in fact, the world has been entirely unsuccessful in, in shutting down the illegal trade of cannabis or in preventing consumers from wanting it. And so, so um, we think it would be a mistake to, to assume that a hyper-regulated legal environment will make this issue go away or, or mitigate risk. Um, I think uh, a greater prioritization around consumer education 
around in, ensuring uh, product quality and standards, uh, around ensuring that uh, particularly access by young adults is acutely limited, but especially that young adults are educated about the harms of starting cannabis use early. I think focus on that will do far more for uh, mitigating the public health risks than by creating such high barriers to entry that you lose, uh, you send you know, a, a great deal of consumers back into the illicit market and then lose any ability to regulate uh, the, the or, or provide guidance to those consumers because you've, you've pushed them out of uh, the public space. And by the way, the legacy market or illicit market, if you will, loves the legal market because they've been flourishing uh, in many states that are, still have legal um, um, laws about, about cannabis. So uh, that's never going to go away. But as someone who has a medical card, I want to be able to go to a dispensary, a store that has already had their product um, graded by the various uh, labs, the scientific labs, so I know exactly what's in it, what the makeup is, what is the cannabinoid profile, what is the terpene profile, so I know the impact or effect that this particular cultivar will have on me. And again, it's only because I was motivated as a consumer to learn more about the product. That's the one thing. When I walked into that first bud tender experience and I explained to them that I've never uh, had any impact when I've eaten a, a thing of brownies that supposedly in the 70s were pot brownies or hash cookies or whatever, it never impacted me. Oh, you're probably immune to it. So take this 100 milligram chocolate bar and break off a third of it, 33, 35 milligrams first time out with an edible. Needless to say, we all learn the hard way in life, don't we? I mean, everybody has an edible story. That was mine. I woke up at 4 a.m. with the whirlies in the room, and I lost a day, basically, uh, because I was so out of it and very uncomfortable experience. And it's, a, it's scary for the industry because a lot of people will try it for the first time, have a bad experience, and then never want to go back to it again. Um, is are we doing a good job as a society in educating the public? And I'm talking about the non-using um, public, the, the can-curious group, if you will, that is interested enough to try it but doesn't know how to. Are we educating those consumers or are we putting too much pressure on the, the gentleman or gentlewoman behind the counter that's been called a bud tender as our advisor? Great, great question. And, you know, so often at the beginning of this industry, one of the, re one of the reasons why so many people were having these nightmare stories, particularly with the edibles, yeah. is the, the bud tenders weren't trained and they were making recommendations based on their own experience. Right. So you have these people who are really heavy consumers who are like, yeah, I eat a candy bar, you know, over the course of a day and I feel fine. So we should try that. Um, and, and it's the equivalent of somebody going to an alcohol store and, and saying, I'm, I'm looking for a drink for the first time and being given a handle of, of vodka and told, yeah, just sip on this all day and, and you'll be good. You would never do that in the alcohol context. Right. right. And, and uh, with cannabis, I think that was one of the, the early points of failure is guiding the can of curious, the new consumer uh, to, to a way that they could very carefully manage and modulate the onboarding experience. Right. I think we've come a really long way. I spend right. a lot of time in dispensaries and you look at the way that bud tenders are being trained now, both to understand who they're dealing with and to make recommendations that are, are going to um, uh, create a 
optimized experience or as best as close to optimized as you can get. Um, I think that's improved dramatically. But a second change is actually the types of products that are available on the market. Um, they're far more, you know, taking a step back, this used to be a market that used to tailor to the highest intensity consumers, which is why the candy bars had, you know, 100 milligrams in some places, 1,000 milligrams within the states that permitted it. Yeah. Um, you're seeing a lot more catering and orientation to lower dose consumers now. And I think that's a trend that's going to, to continue. Uh, beverages are just one illustration. You're seeing a lot of companies that are doing two milligram of THC beverages. Mm -hmm. uh, five years ago, that would be almost unthinkable because it'd be like, who wants such a low dose? But right. if you're planning on sipping on six of these cans over the course of an evening, that might actually be a pretty good way to go um, to, to, to an environment where you're drinking. Yeah. So the advent of these low-dose products, I think, has also helped reduce the risk of that 100 milligram edible in one sitting story for those who are coming in. But I don't disagree at all that this continues to be an area where there's opportunity for better education, particularly amongst those initial points of contact, amongst the bug tenders and amongst people who have uh, uh, in their families or in their social networks, people who are canicures and and who are going to be serving as their their uh, guides to bring them into this into this space. Yeah, it's start low and go slow. That was the mantra that the green nurses were um, espousing here in Massachusetts at the very beginning of the medical program in 2013 here in the Bay State. But it has now taken on a life of its own as adult use opportunities have opened up in, you know, New Jersey just opened up their market a, a few uh, weeks ago, maybe even a week ago. I don't know what day it is, but it was a while, a few, about very quickly. It was about a week ago or so to, ago. Um, my one of my biggest beefs about the media world that I come from, you know, I've spent 30 years in commercial media, is the they're, they're not giving the cannabis industry equal treatment in their storytelling. They tend to sensationalize when something goes wrong in this new industry, the most regulated industry we've had in my lifetime anyway, uh, that's making as much money as it is. No public service announcements allowed. A couple of opportunities to do this on a Super Bowl. Uh, they, they've denied a couple of them that have been out there. So my point is, anything that goes wrong leads a newscast. But the stories about how cannabis has saved my life, cannabis has changed my life, are just falling on deaf ears in the traditional media. Are we ever going to see more states that are now that now have adult use legalization actually have a better campaign than talking down to the public, which is the stuff that I've seen so far. You've, I think the public is far more educated about this substance than those that are creating the laws think they are. So again, back to my question, are we ever going to see a more friendly approach to cannabis by our traditional media? That's a really interesting observation, and candidly, I think it's going to take a while. Yep. The stigma against cannabis in, in our society's major institutions remains very, very deeply rooted. Yep. And so we think a couple of things are, are happening in, in tandem. One, America, broadly speaking, is not waiting for any guidance, whether it's from the federal government or from the media overlords uh, on this issue. This, is, this has become a kitchen table issue. And part of the reason why you're seeing social attitudes change so quickly, why part of the reason you're seeing adoption increase so quickly, is people are talking to their friends and family. You know, 
it helped grandma with her arthritis. How can you be opposed to it if, if, if it's helped somebody uh, you, you, you dearly love uh, improve the quality of life and improve the health outcomes? So, so the fact that you know, the public is largely behind medical cannabis, uh, a strong majority support, full national legalization, I think it's just reflective of the fact that even outside of the cannabis consumer community, the general public is now, um, this is settled law for, for, the, for the general public. So that's the first point. In terms of the major institutions, it, it will take, in our estimation, um, a few more leading institutions or leading institution executives to make some tough calls or to make some judgment calls about um, how to reframe the conversation around cannabis. So um, we saw it in milestone shows like CN uh, Weeds on, on CNN, which you know, became a global uh, uh, and, and story and, and that really changed the conversation far outside the US uh, um, because people in Africa were sending me uh, links to it saying, I can't believe this is actually happening. It's being covered by a mainstream stream channel. Right. Um, you, you see it um, in, in some of the types of depictions of cannabis in mainstream television shows where it stops being the the kind of stereotypical stoner kid that's the that's the um, villain of the story that's the, the cannabis consumer and now it's you know the the hard-working mother who's raising two good boys that um, is smoking a joint instead of having a glass of wine at the end of the day or having an edible instead of uh, at the end right. of the day. these right. these um seedings of a reframing of the conversation i think will will gain momentum and then ultimately it will get to the point where you do start to see far more um not necessarily even skew positive coverage but co coverage that reflects our reality um you know the, the there's still so much condemnation of the cannabis consumer in, in the mainstream media that uh, of there being an element an, a criminal element to them um, I think that's quickly going to start to go away, partly as law enforcement drifts away from this idea that you know, just because you, you have cannabis on you that you're a criminal, as, pro as pro prohibition enforcement uh, uh, falls out of favor in most parts of the country. Um, these are changes that are slowly going to trickle up. And, and ultimately, I think you're going to start seeing uh, a much more favorable characterization uh, by all media friends. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons why I started my own media company, because I saw an interview uh, by, by a network reporter with a CEO of a cannabis multi-state operator, and I was so appalled by the line of questions. This reporter had done absolutely no due diligence, no research, and was playing along with every myth that was out there. And perhaps that was the angle on this. Again, commercial media driven by ratings. They're looking to sensationalize just to get more and more people to have uh, a reason to share, like, and subscribe. Uh, because that's the passion now. That's what drives media is the data. So um, I do want to ask you one question. I have to add, bring this up because it, it is probably the biggest impact over the period of time that you guys did your, your uh, research at New Frontier Data was the uh, pandemic. The fact that um, in legal states, many governors allowed this uh, industry to stay open because they saw it as an essential service because of the medical um, ability, capabilities, and impact of this product. Now, that did not happen in the Bay State of Massachusetts, and let's not go there. It's one of the bigger, more embarrassing things that I have to uh, explain to people, um, but the medical community did stay open. So the impact of becoming an essential, uh, being accepted as an essential part of our 
world, our normal world, has to have added towards the movement, towards normalization and acceptance more of this product. Isn't that what we're finding here? Sure. And, and there, there was a number of effects that the pandemic has had on where cannabis sits in our society that I think we're going to be um, parsing through for, for years to come. Mm -hmm. So first was this idea that even governments perhaps may not necessarily have been in favor of, of cannabis as a new industry in their markets. We're forced to contend with the fact that there's a lot of patients in the state that use cannabis that find therapeutic value on it. And you shut these businesses down and you're literally cutting them off from their medicine. Mm -hmm. So the idea that cannabis has, is, is uh, one of the few sectors that was in mo most parts of the country deemed essential was game changing for people who might not have been paying close attention to uh, the importance of this space, particularly amongst the consumers who are using it therapeutically. Second is during the pandemic, when the world shut down and people got caught off from their, their social lives, it actually allowed, gave consumers a lot more opportunities to consume cannabis in ways that you probably wouldn't if you're out um, commuting to work or you know having soccer practice with the kids over the weekend. Um, now that with people locked down at home, um, they had more time to, to, to both experiment with and consume cannabis in ways that, that the rigor of day, daily life pre-pandemic didn't allow. So we saw a nearly 30% nearly increase in cannabis consumer spending uh, between February of 2020 and March of 2020. And that has been sustained since then. Yeah. And, and I think we just set a record in this country for most weeds sold uh, around the 420 holiday, too. Uh, and I, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not really good at predicting even sports that I think I know a lot about. But I guarantee that number is going to keep going up as the years go on and on, because it's no going to become more and more accepted. Right. Sure. No question about it. And, and the, the part of the reason why this pandemic, I think, has been so important to this, the, the rate of growth that we're seeing is the longer it has extended, the, the more uh, the, uh, embedded these disruptions have become in the way we live, then the more entrenched these new consumption habits have become. So even as we start to return to normal social society, candidly, I think you're going to start seeing a lot more people who are going to be bringing uh, cannabis products to the, to the summer barbecues than uh, you were seeing pre-pandemic. It's going to become, um, they're, they're going to be become bringing these learned behaviors during the pandemic back into social society with them. So we're certainly expecting to see a lot more cannabis beverages and edibles at summer barbecues in 2022 than we've ever seen before. Absolutely. Um, John Kagia, the Chief Knowledge Officer of New Frontier Data. How do people get a hold of this report or is it industry only? Oh, not at all. Not at all. It's actually available for free. Uh, go to newfrontierdata.com where you can gain access to um, this, our latest report on the cannabis consumer, as well as free access to every other report that we've produced around the industry, the U.S. markets, the global markets, uh, and the key trends uh, and, and market sectors that are laying the foundation for the emergence of a global cannabis economy. And can we get it to be required reading for the U.S. Senate? Is, is there any way to do that? We're working very actively to get it in the hands of as many lawmakers as we can. Because I, I really believe that once you start reading this, uh, it really is really, you cover a lot of different elements of this. And I think we only scratched maybe half of them that at, the, at the most. But I, I just found it fascinating. And I really do believe that education is going to dictate the future 
of this plant. And the more research we get done on it, the better and more effective uses we'll find. You know, they discover different cannabinoids in this plant almost every few months or so. And it, we still are still learning what the THC, CBD, CBG, CBH, YZ, whatever, everything has a different effect. So it's a, there's still plenty to be learned out there, isn't there? No question about it. And, and we think this is why this is such a critical moment in uh, the evolution of this industry. One couldn't agree more of that. Unfortunately, our lawmakers have, have been largely basing their policymaking on anecdote, stigma, and um, uh, counsel of people who were strongly opposed to this. It was, uh, you know, a decade ago, no lawmaker in the right mind would come out as a strong advocate for this because um, tough on crime was the way forward. But that's yeah. changing and that's changing dramatically. Yeah. And as we start to see greater education amongst policymakers, so we start to see better um, and public serving policies, as we start to see greater allocation toward research, if I, I spoke to a Harvard uh, physician who said, if we went to the Amazon and discovered cannabis today, it would be global blockbuster news. Man has discovered, man or woman has discovered um, a miracle wonder plot. But because of a century of prohibition, um, we, we, we really have not come close to capitalizing the full potential of this plant. All of these things are going to be happening over the next few years, which make this a particularly exciting time uh, for this industry. Fantastic. Well, that's a great way to end it, John. I really enjoyed talking with you, and I could probably keep talking with you for hours on end, but we both have busy days. I don't want to give you an opportunity to get back to actually selling this to <laughs> the people who need to read it, okay? So, John, I so appreciate you taking the time. Remember, everybody, it's a whole new world of weed out there. Use it responsibly. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening to In the Weeds with Jimmy Young. Hey, you want to grow your own plants? Check out Style Lighting's Grow Kit. It has everything you need to become an expert home grower and bring the power of the sun indoors. Style Lighting uses TCP's high-powered commercial LEDs that deliver twice the output in the market. The Grow Kit has a grow bag, a timer, chains to hang the light, and of course the best in the business lighting system by TCP. Check out stylelighting.shop for more information. Weed Talk and In the Weeds are two productions of pro-cannabis media supported by Revolutionary Clinics, one of the top medical cannabis dispensaries in the Massachusetts area, now with three locations in Greater Boston, two in Cambridge, and one on Broadway in Somerville. Rev Clinics has a patient-first mission. They will customize your needs as a medical patient with the proper titration and combination of strains, flavors, and products. Rev Clinics, where the patient comes first. Difference is building a solution for that individual. Not just a custom, here's a box, here's a video, here's how you make your VMS. We custom design and custom build every situation for exactly what the customer needs. 
and we keep the cost low. We have multiple tiers, you know, as far as what you're looking at on the cost side of things. If you want a one-time, you know, where you just pay one initial cost, we have that. If you want to maintain your system and have the highest protection and highest capabilities and highest upgrades at all times, we have different plans for you. But we scale it so it's scalable and affordable 100%. Cannabis Media Programming is available live and on demand on our Facebook page at ProCanna Media, on Instagram at ProCannabis Media, on LinkedIn also at ProCannabis Media, on YouTube and YouTube Live on ProCannabis Media, Twitter at ProCanna Media, and on twitch.tv backslash ProCannabis Media. So like, share, and subscribe to all of our content, newsletters, and shows live or on demand. We are Pro Cannabis Media.